0: Paramhansa Yogananda A Biography by Swami Kriyananda Talk 17 by Asha Praver September 4, 2012 Copyright 2012 Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto
1: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Divine, Mother, Friend, Divine Mother, Friend Beloved God, Friend, Beloved God Jesus, Christ, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna,
2: Babaji
1: Krishna Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Guru, Beloved Guru Paramhansa, Yogananda, Paramhansa, Yogananda,
3: Paramhansa
1: Yogananda, Saints of all religions, Humbly we, bow to you all. Humbly we bow to you all. Help us to expand our awareness that we may receive your message of true spirituality, of true spirituality deep within ourselves. Oh. Peace. peace. Amen. two or more gathered together, barely, but we made it. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) So, we are on the last of three classes about true Christianity and true Hinduism. And we are going through uh, Swamiji's 15 points of the main teachings of Christ, and we're up to point number 10. So, before we go forward, does anybody have any questions or thoughts about anything we've covered until now? Number 10 is... uh, Not such an easy one. Living for God is martyrdom. This was a favorite saying of my guru. I mean, so it's not like it's even something he just said once and then didn't tell us again. This was a favorite saying of my gurus. Tests, suffering, opposition, misunderstanding, yes, persecution too, all these attend the spiritual journey. For God wants to be quite sure of our love. But if we meet every test with an attitude not of forbearance, but rather of joyful, willing acceptance, God will never let us down. In the end, the devotee infallibly finds that these tests of God's have pointed him always toward his highest soul happiness in the Lord. So the word martyrdom is a question of what's being martyred. And he says living for God is martyrdom. And that's based on the false misunderstanding that the ego clings to very strongly that the purpose of life is pleasure and ease. And what's really being martyred is that wrong idea. And insofar as we hold to that idea that um, the whole spiritual path is what, what, what brings me happiness and what actually causes me suffering. And it's a, it's a very confusing picture because we're just convinced that God is torturing us in some way. And I mean, I just, I've recently got this letter that I have to answer. I haven't been writing my answers to questions lately, but I'm starting again. You know, why did God make a world in which it doesn't work out so happily for us? Why is there suffering if God loves us? All those same questions that everyone asks. But it's, it's exactly like a little child from the perspective of being four years old explaining to its parents exactly what its life is about and what it's going to do and why it's going to do it and how it's going to work out just fine. And the parents try to work with that child's reality in order to um, inspire it to embrace a greater reality, but it can only work with that reality up to a certain point. Because after that, the child is acting in willful ignorance. And you you simply can't let the child insist that um, something is true and will bring it happiness when it's self-evident with even the slightest perspective that it isn't going to. And that's exactly the position that we are in relationship to God and Guru, that we believe, just because we believe it, that we know certain things and that certain realities are beneficial realities to us, and they aren't. And we just don't know any better. But wisdom itself, which is the divine wisdom is an aspect of wisdom, it simply can't, it can't change reality just because we want it to be different. And so God is always um, guiding us to a more expansive awareness than what we presently have. And it says right here, you know, um, tests, suffering, opposition, misunderstanding, persecution... All are part of the spiritual journey. Um, But if we meet every test with an attitude, not even of forbearance, but of joyful, willing acceptance, then God will never let us down. In the end, we infallibly find that these tests of God have been to lead us to happiness. So is it even a test if the net result of it is going to be an expansion of consciousness that gives you a happiness that can't be touched? So it's really all in your point of view. And that's why Master often said, you know, living for God is martyrdom, because he didn't want people to be unprepared for it. Because if you're unprepared for it, if you just imagine, oh, now I'm on the spiritual path and everything was difficult before, and now it'll be easy, um, you're underestimating, as Swami writes elsewhere, the magnitude of the transformation um, that God and Guru are offering us. We, we can't, we literally can't imagine um, the extent to which the spiritual path will transform us. And only after many long years when we look back do we realize how really different we've become. And we realize that we've become that because of the tests and trials we had to face. So then, are they tests and trials? It just gets to be, if the net result of it is freedom, is it really a problem? Swamiji talks about how recently he had a dream in which he was being burned at the stake. And... Um, he was quite um, indifferent to the fact that he was being burned at the stake. He was aware of the fact that there would be pain, but the pain would be short-lived, and then it would be over. And, you know, that wasn't such a a terrible thought. And as he talked about it, he said, in the odd way of dreams, he was being burned at the stake, and just a few feet away from him, his enemies were all enjoying a banquet together. They were the ones who were burning him. So he was burning over here, and they were feasting over there. And, I mean, everybody was having a good time. And then, before he actually was incinerated, um, his friends came and rescued him. But he mentioned that what was so gratifying to him about the whole dream was that his state of mind was the same when he was about to be burned at the stake and then when he was rescued from it. Because it just, none of it really made any difference to him. It, It was all just part of God's dream and whichever way it went, it didn't matter. I mean, just think, how much energy we spend being anxious. Anxious about the past, anxious about the present, anxious about the future. I had the just a, a, a moment in time once when I was, I happened to be just going up the stairs of my house, and I thought about the consciousness of an avatar being absolutely fearless, just totally without fear. And for just a moment I I clicked into that reality and I just felt what an extraordinarily different state of mind that is from what I, and I presume most people normally live in. And by the grace of God, I think that I'm perhaps less anxious than some, although more anxious than many. But even still, the difference between complete freedom and what I consider normal, just in that moment I was given a glimpse of what it is. Now. We're just not finished until we reach that state of complete freedom. And the only way we're going to get there is by going through whatever it is that keeps us from that freedom. So when we have to go through that, um, why would we consider that to be a problem? We do consider it to be a problem, but, but there's no reason to. And that's why Master said it's martyrdom, it's martyrdom of the ego and all its comfortable little thoughts. And if we just know that, without either seeking it or shrinking from it. But just, you know, life is going to be ups and downs, and all I have to do is just stay even-minded in the middle and accept with joy what God sends me. Um, And this is, of course, Christianity makes a tremendous point of the necessity to face the difficulties of life because of the way Jesus acted out his life with the crucifixion. So of all the religions in the world that really talk about martyrdom, Christianity is way up there. But the, the great mistake of churchianity has been to define the life of Jesus by his crucifixion and not by his resurrection. But in truth, the resurrection is really the definition of Christianity, and the crucifixion was just the, the way to get there. And Christianity stops when he was crucified, and they know he was resurrected, but we only go there once a year at Easter, pretty much. And even then, we have to pretend for three days that it's not going to happen so that we can be really happy on, on Easter morning. You know, they take all the flowers out of the churches and the Catholic churches, and they make them really dark and grim until Christmas, until Easter morning. Swami said, everyone knows he was resurrected. <laughs> <laughs> but they really could have chosen that. They could have chosen the triumph more than the suffering. But they chose the suffering because it was Kali Yuga. But what we have to do now is choose the triumph and just see it very differently. And a little bit of, you know, a little bit of uh, challenges builds character. Even though we don't seek it, it builds character. You know, children who are protected from challenges do not grow up strong, just like us. if If we're never allowed to find out our own strength, we don't, we never know it. And then we always live in fear. Only when we know our own strength, which a master really knows, do we go beyond it. Does that make sense? It's an extremely important teaching. Yes.
0: Well, this is more of a comment than a question, actually. Uh, Yeah, until very recently, my idea of Christianity was. Basically nothing. I just knew that Jesus was born on Christmas, and he was crucified on Good Friday. And I always used to wonder if he was crucified. Why is it called Good Friday?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and because these two used to be holidays, and Easter Sunday was not a, was anyways a holiday. So I never knew it existed. Uh-huh. So why is it called Good? Is the, is it the same reason why it's called Good Friday? Or that's a very
1: good question. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> you know, were you raised in the church that told you? Uh-huh.
2: Uh-huh. Um, I got to be friends with Catholic nuns, and um, one of the
1: nuns—no—but it's not your problem. It's fine. Just leave um, it. uh-huh. one of the, one of the nuns
2: um, was really into suffering, uh-huh. and I was in spiritual direction from her, and I was even saying that thing about that I was a sinner. I mm-hmm. can't remember the, you know, and and when I came here and she was really interested in Ananda and um, we talked about the point of view here the way I understood it mm-hmm. and um, she was furious that I, when I said that when Christ was on the cross he was he didn't even have to feel the pain and she was absolutely furious then why am I suffering really? wow. yeah and you know we've only met one more time after that wow. isn't that interesting yeah, it, but she was
1: really into suffering. Well, it's, that's, okay, um, according to the Bhagavad Gita, according to the Christian teaching, there was only ever been one son of God, To traditional Christian teaching. Jesus was the only son of God. There was no revelation before him. There's been no revelation after him. He's the sole savior of everyone. Given that, they don't really have to ever explain who he was. They just declare it. And it doesn't have to really make any sense. And when you start getting close to it, it really doesn't make any sense. In India, where there's a continuous tradition of avatars coming from age to age, from time to time, and they have a whole long history of all of these great souls, they have to understand more who these people are and why they keep arriving. And then Krishna, in the Bhagavad Gita says, whenever virtue declines and vice predominates, I, the infinite spirit, take visible form to destroy evil and to bring about dharma again, righteousness again. So we then can put Jesus into the context of this, you know, never-ending periodic sequence of great masters who descend for a specific purpose. But then new masters have to keep coming because culture shifts, time shifts, and the revelations become diluted. So one of the enormous dilutions of Christianity has been the equation of spirituality with suffering, and that suffering in itself is a sign of being spiritual because after all, look how Jesus suffered and that was claiming the resurrection, the crucifixion instead of the resurrection. But Master came to fix that, and that's why in the Festival of Light we say every week, whereas in the past suffering and sorrow was the coin of man's redemption, meaning that you know the Christians were, are, are convinced that you have to suffer, and that's how you win God's approval. Whereas in the past, this was the way we thought For us now, that payment has been exchanged for calm acceptance and joy. And that is one of the major messages of Yogananda as the second coming of Christ. It's an extremely important point to integrate in your mind. And it has to be balanced with the fact that trials and persecutions will come. But it's not the suffering that makes you holy. It's the way you respond to it and responding to it by seeing beyond it to the promise of liberation and of joy that overcoming um, this delusion of suffering will give you. And the poor nun, yeah. I mean, they do get very upset because often their lives are very unhappy or miserable, or they make themselves miserable. And the only way that that's justified in their minds is that somehow this is pleasing God and that there'll be some reward in the hereafter. You even have that extremely bewildering cycle of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who posthumously these letters were published, which made it seem as if she was miserable all the time. And Swamiji, he just keeps saying he's he's puzzled by that because... um, He sort of feels... I mean, he he just has never really come up with a good answer, but one is that she just felt obligated to suffer somehow, that she couldn't allow herself to feel joyful, or she felt she needed to write to her spiritual counselor in misery because how could you not be in misery if you were a good Christian? But it's, um, thank God, not a teaching that we have to embrace. But it's interesting because Master does want us to know, though, that doesn't mean... See, which some people try to pretend... Some people think, therefore, you shouldn't have to strive at all on the spiritual path. That whatever is pleasurable and easy is what's spiritual. And if it's not pleasurable and easy, it's not spiritual. But that, too, is a big misunderstanding. That's why Master said, living for God is martyrdom. He said that to Swamiji in the context of... When Swami made some little comment like, you know, he didn't really want to lecture and teach. And that Master said, living for God is martyrdom. Meaning, I don't really... Not really interested in what your preferences are, you know. You just have to put your preferences aside and do what's needed. Did you have more to say on that, Marilyn? No,
2: I'm just. I'm just so glad I escaped.
1: <laughs> That's about sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah, thank yeah. God we escaped.
0: Okay. Um, could we introduce renunciation into this conversation as a way to sort of uplift it, rather than sort of? Um, instead of ha- speaking of the n- speaking negatively as a um, uh, we're, we're overcoming, well, no, um, we're overcoming martyrdom, as in martyrdom's the thing we want to put away. Whereas we can approach it as renunciation is the of the ego. Yeah, this is just well, sort of emphasis.
1: Well, you can, and you can reframe everything as often as you can into positive words. You know, renunciation um, is a very positive word to me. You're renouncing ego, you're renouncing limitation, you're renouncing um, limited self-identity, and and by consequence, by extension, you're embracing infinity, (coughs) you're embracing a larger reality, you're embracing your soul nature. The one little thing we don't want to lose is, this is just my own opinion, is that we have to be prepared to work really hard and we have to be prepared to, um, to face the fact that there's just going to be, we're going to have to do to to war with ourselves. We have to battle ourselves. And you don't have to cast that as a negative fact, but I don't think it serves you to not know that as a fact. Because it just takes a, a, a constant, determined self-discipline. Even Sister Gyanamata, who you know was just a wonderful, joyful devotee, said, you know, that there are tests that God sends you that have, she said, it. it I, mean, I can't think of the exact words at the moment, it's slipping my mind, but she said, you know, it, it puzzled her why she had to lose everything. She said, even little things that harmed no one that were hers by right, those were the phrases she used, even those God took away from her. Tests, she said, that had no other purpose except simply to free her of self-will of self-centered will, of ego-driven will. And she just realized that everything just had to be given up. And I think it's naive of us not to know that and and naive of us to imagine that that is effortless. But effort doesn't necessarily mean suffering. Um, But effort does mean that it's not effortless. That, you know, just it comes to you, you face it, you deal with it, you go forward. But there are, you have to face it. There are moments when it's just not easy. That's the only way to say it.
0: Yes? Yeah? And uh, taking a step back, um. in terms of people who are sort of uh, obsessed in a way with suffering or just sort of hooked, hooked on it, um, do you think there's a way to put that in karmic terms?
1: Well, it's a stage so. of... I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a dogma of Christianity. <laughs> so you would just get caught by the dogma um, you would have to the only way you would learn it is by your own experience. And you know, some do transcend suffering through suffering. It's it 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 can take you there, but in the end what you understand is that suffering is not in itself a spiritual practice. It's uh it's it's a challenge to your sense of joy actually. It's ego affirming in its own way. Yeah, because you want to be identified with, well, there was the saint, um, Rabia, I think was her name, it was a woman saint. Someone said to her, you know, he is no devotee who doesn't um, willingly accept suffering for his lo- out of love for God, and she said, this smacks of ego. And someone said, well, he is no devotee who doesn't joyously suffer out of love for God. She said, better, but not quite right. And then they said, well, tell us, it was a woman, tell us, mother, what is the right answer? He is no devotee who doesn't forget his suffering in the contemplation of the joy of God. So you, you see, there's stages that you go forward. It's a, it, the first step is the willingness. The second step is to be joyful in it. And the third step is never to define it as suffering. Because if it's what God sends you, what is wrong with it? I remember this is so childish by comparison to what we're really talking about, but I remember being about three years old, and there was this toy shelf in my bedroom, which in my mind's eye, it was huge. It was probably couldn't have been very large because, I mean, I was just a little child. How big could it have been? But I remember it as being enormous. And I had this idea one day that I would clean it. So I pulled all the toys off and piled them in the middle of the floor and then promptly lost interest in the project. And when my mother saw what I had done, she being a very, very appropriate mother, said, you know, you've started this, you have to finish it. And for some reason, the task just seemed enormous to me, and I was very bummed to, to have to do this. And I recall sitting in the middle of the room, just kind of with that little cry that children do when they're not really crying, but they want the parents to know that they're upset about something. So I'm kind of boo-hooing and whining, and then just in this, the most lackadaisical kind of, tragic way, picking up one tiny toy at a time and then dropping it on the shelf and then crying a little more and picking it up. And I remember that. And then I remember inside of myself thinking, oh, come on, just put the toys away. What is this? And I've always, that's always stayed in my mind because, you know, in my adult life, I find myself with something that has to be done. And I get into this boohooing, tragic sort of attitude, whether I'm actually literally sitting there, putting out no effort, using all my effort to boohoo, and a piece of me thinks, just come on, just do it. And that's sort of what we go through. It may still be much more difficult than just putting those toys on the shelf, but it looked like a big job to a child. But nonetheless, why, why waste all this energy boohooing about it? Just do it. Once it's done, it's done. Then it's behind you. And I mean, many times in my spiritual life, I've actually seen myself behaving as I did when I was three years old confronted with the toy shelf and have been helped by the simple realization, oh just quit crying and do it. I remember once I used to cry a lot more, I used to be a lot more emotional, and I was upset about something and I flung myself on my bed and I was going to weep. And I lay down there and I sort of was getting myself worked up into an emotional state and I thought, Asha you know, you're going to be like this for a while, then you're going to get up, and then you're going to get over it, and all of this emotion is just going to exhaust you, and it's going to be just a really tiring day. And I said, okay, and I just got up. <laughs> I was very proud of myself, very proud of myself, because it was just like these things happen. We don't have to, we don't have to go there. But it, uh, it, takes, it takes a constant Um, I mean, you know, women have a greater inclination to become emotional. Men um, deal with things by becoming too stoic, and they appear to be um, transcending them, but they're merely suppressing them, and then it just becomes more complicated in other ways. But uh, it takes a solid, steady, unrelenting commitment to actually be... You see, like Swamiji, he said this many years ago, His subconscious is exactly the same as his conscious mind. See, most of us have dreams and when the leash is off, the subconscious mind puts out things that you've suppressed on the conscious level. Fears or angers or disappointments, whatever they might be, whether they're past life or this life. Swami has often commented that his dreams are exactly like his waking life. There's no, he doesn't have two realities. I mean, that's, it's quite a statement when you think about it. He's really saying there's no riches in the chakras. That's what he's actually saying by that. Which is quite something. But you don't get there <clears throat> just by acting good. You get there by actually releasing those samskars. Yeah.
2: yeah? That, that means he can just sit there and, and not start ruminating about... So and so did this to me, and I mean, he just—it doesn't happen, huh? He doesn't even have to try.
1: Mm, well, he's had to discipline himself to I do mean, it, but he no, but he's—he can be—he's being burned at the stake, and he's perfectly he, perfectly calm about it. He's rescued, and he's not elated. He's just indifferent. Kriyananda is not him. What happens to Kriyananda doesn't happen to him. You know, and he, he's had to work with SRF because that's been the big. And he's, been, he's had a lot of betrayals in his life. Now, here's what you have to understand, and this took me years to understand about him. He's quite impersonal about the things that happen to him, which is to say he just sees that they happen, and he doesn't so deeply identify with them or allow them to define him. But that doesn't mean he doesn't feel them. He's really very sensitive to nuances of, of feeling, but he just observes them. He doesn't, he doesn't identify with them, as the right word. So to say when something unkind happens, it doesn't register. It does register, but then it just passes. You know, he observes it, and then it just passes.
2: And then, does that mean that you don't have any new... Um...
1: You're not making new samskaras, that's right. Oh, okay. Because there's no point of ego to which those events are tied. See, when we're identified with what happens to us, we're identified with ego, then everything that happens, we identify with it and we hold it, we, we tie it. But if there's no center point of ego, the energy just simply flows through and nothing holds it. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, it's fabulous to meditate on, meditating on his consciousness, on master's consciousness. Just as I was saying, I was just walking up the stairs and I thought, wow, what would it be like to be absolutely unafraid? And just in that moment, I just got a glimpse of it. You know, it's a, it's a very deliberate practice to, what would it be like to have no scars? What would it be like to have hurtful things happen but not identify with them? You know, what would it be like to have suffering but not feel that just because I'm suffering, I have to suffer? Swamiji, he had his hip replaced. He actually he has two hips, but he had three hip operations because one of them had to be done again, for reasons I don't remember right now. But he doesn't like um, full anesthesia, so they did the hip operations with a, a spinal, you know, just numbing the lower part of his body. But in the when when the it was the second or third operation was not quite finished, the anesthesia wore off, and they were still sewing him up, and he knew that if he gave any sign of the fact that the anesthesia had worn off, the only thing they would do would be to make him completely unconscious and he didn't want to be made unconscious. So not only did he not ask for any anesthesia, but when you think about this, he had to sit so still that they didn't know he could feel it. And so he, he felt them sewing up his the muscles, the layers of muscle and so on. And, and he was able to be so outside of his body that he just, um, they didn't even know. And it wasn't until the anesthetologist came to him in the recovery room and asked him if he could wiggle his toes. And when Swami indicated the degree to which the anesthesia had worn off, the anesthetologist worked backwards and realized what that meant. And as Swami said, turned very pale and kind of leaned against the wall because he realized what Swami had just been through, but he never mentioned it. I, I mean, I can't. I, I, I practice when I have a tiny little you know, physical thing wrong with me I try to practice being stoic about it I can't even imagine I just don't even know how to go there
2: I was just wondering you said he went out of his body so like sometimes something really traumatic can happen and you can go out of your body while it's happening well
1: you can dissociate from dissociate. your body but that's, that's not different. quite the same because oh. even if you dissociate you're dissociating because there's ego suffering and you're numbing yourself to that suffering by dissociating from it, which is a, which is a psychologically unhealthy thing. To, to not be afraid of it and to not identify with it is a far more subtle reality. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it, these are very, very important distinctions because people will often hear the spiritual principles and then they will apply unhealthy psychological explanations to them which are not true this is something quite different Yeah. that's why I was saying the masculine response sometimes is to just close off and, and go through it stoically but you're not really transcending it you're just suppressing your experience of it
0: Yeah. Uh, in terms of the eight aspects of God uh-huh. um, would the approach here be um, active calmness being actively calm
1: that would be very fair actively calm You see, it's a combination. It's love because you feel that whatever God gives you is offered to you with love and you accept it with devotion. If somebody who loves you gives you a present and you know they love you and you know the present is carefully selected for you, you accept it with deep gratitude. We come to the point of relationship with Divine Mother and with Guru where we know that every single thing that happens to us in life is a carefully selected gift offered with love and we learn to accept in the same spirit. Joy is obviously part of it too because um, we're happy that God is gifting us, gifting us with enormous trials and troubles so that we can become free. Swamiji once joked, he said, you know, my enemies are really my best friends because they're helping me to work out my bad karma. He said, all of you who are my good friends are just helping me use up my good karma. Of course, he's just joking, but it's it's a way to look at it. But it's a joyful way to look at it. Wisdom comes into it. But active calmness is a very good one. You choose whichever works best for you. Is it <coughs> sometimes? <coughs> sometimes love or joy is just too far beyond you. Active calmness is the best you can do. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, uh, also, as um, when you said treating your enemies as sort of a gift or yeah. a welcome trial and. In terms of the the Gita, Arjuna's whole (laughs) deal with his family, right? That's sort of the...
1: All the Kauravas were, all his cousins were his difficulty. Yeah. Um, You know, in the Gita, well, we'll do the Mahabharata next week. I mean, two weeks, and we'll start talking about that. we just pause for a second. Yeah, in the end, it was all it it was meant to be, and Krishna's pushing him right through the whole experience and telling him to not bewail it, but just embrace it. So it's a kshatriya's dharma. He had to do it. Kings have to be kings. Kshatriyas have to be kshatriyas. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. Then we'll go on to number 11. We must forgive everyone who tries to harm us, for all men in their heart of hearts want only bliss. Everything they do, whether wise or foolish, kind or unkind, unselfish or selfish, is done with the ulterior motive of achieving bliss. If others try to harm one, it is only this desire surfacing in them in a distorted way. No matter how they treat you, therefore, accept that treatment gratefully. View it as a blessing from God sent to free you from ego bondage. These things all sound so good until they actually happen. (laughs) And then when they actually happen, you know, one's instinctive desire to have your feelings hurt, to be justified, to want to explain. It's just um, fascinating to watch the way the delusion plays itself out in us. And I mean, it's that's why this chapter is so marvelous because you just get these principles clear in your mind. Everyone wants bliss even when they mistreat you in ways that are self-evidently wrong, according to the principles of dharma, the person is doing it because on some weird level he thinks it's going to make him happy to do so. He's probably not thinking of your happiness, he's probably thinking only of his own. Swamiji tells us, it's interesting with Swamiji, he tells us some of the same stories over and over again, and you know, there's a tendency sometimes to think, oh, I've heard this before, but the most fascinating thing about many of the stories he repeats is that when you really listen to them closely, you, you, you begin to get it on a deeper level. And he has told us the story recently, because it happened relatively recently, of being in Florence and having the dream in which he saw all these different kinds of people, and he realized that all of them were just seeking bliss, no matter how they were behaving no matter how criminal or unkind or holy they appeared, they were all exactly the same. They were all doing the same thing um, from their own point of view, which was that they were seeking bliss. And of course, Swamiji in his own life has had only one intention, and that intention has been to seek bliss. And that unified him with everybody on the planet. And it also made him completely sympathetic and supportive of everyone on the planet. Because we're all here just trying to do exactly the same things. Um, And when we have a tendency to identify with the body that we're in and the ego that's associated with it, and feel that somebody else is trying to do something to hurt this one, the first thing that comes to our mind is not always how in our hearts we're at one with those people. We just divide, we divide the world up, and Swami was saying recently, insofar as we close our hearts even to one person, to that extent we close our hearts to God. I had an extremely weird experience a number of years ago, which I've shared with some of you, but I'll, it, it fits here. We learned to scuba dive, David and I did, about eight or nine years ago now, quite a long time ago. And... Um, we, we'd, always been, we'd always enjoyed snorkeling. We thought we would enjoy scuba diving, so we, we went somewhere. Um, this is when David's mother would give us money every year on the condition that we'd spend it on ourselves <laughs> and not give it to Ananda. So for that period of time, we took some rather fun vacations. Um, so we were, we were learning to do it, and, and both of us liked it, but were a little freaked. We sort of gradually gave it up because being underwater breathing out of a tank. Neither of us ever felt entirely comfortable. Um, but I also, um, I sort of had a little bit of a moment that scared me, and so I was a little more nervous than he was. So we had our first year, and then we went back for our second year of scuba diving, and I was really pretty nervous about having to go underwater again. And the night before our first adventure, this was supposed to be a vacation, of course, I, was, I couldn't sleep because I was so nervous. And I kept trying to use all the techniques that I knew to calm myself down. And then I, had, I began to wonder why Divine Mother was showing me no mercy. That was how I began to cross my mind. You know, Why don't you, why don't you give me a little bit of an experience here? That will just take this anxiety away from me. And I had the strangest connection that came into my, my head. I thought of some person who's not in our community anymore. He was just around for a while. And he was an unpleasant person as far as I was concerned. I just found him unpleasant, and I found it difficult to be loving toward him because I found him unpleasant. I behaved properly, but in my heart of hearts was always this little bit of, I don't really like you. And I realized that there was a direct connection between my attitude toward him and Divine Mother's present attitude toward me. That because I had closed my heart, um, now when I really needed love and protection, there was just this little bit of a block between us. And I mean, maybe I was just making it up, but it certainly felt true to me. When Swami says later, if you close your heart, it was sort of like I hadn't expressed mercy, so when I needed mercy, there was no mercy to be had for me. And it was a very important lesson. I came back and I was so nice to that man. It was just so nice. He must have really wondered what had happened to me. But, I mean, I tried to be nicer to everyone because I could just see the relationship. What, as you give, so shall you receive. As you sow, that's what you'll reap. It was just so obvious to me. It was a complicated, seeming non-relationship of things. You know, scuba diving, going underwater. But it was all about how open we are or how closed we are. And so when Swami writes here, even when others are very unkind to you, you know, how will it help for you to be unkind back? How will it help you? How will it help them? How will it help the universe? What good will it do to anyone? No matter how justified you are, in the end you're just, uh, you know, ruining your own nest, really. Because where you live is inside your own consciousness. And if your own consciousness is, is closed and rejecting, even if you're rejecting people because they deserve it, that very thought closes you. And then, in my case, when you need mercy, there's no mercy to be had. Very, very interesting, because in a very real sense, I hadn't created a universe in which mercy was offered. That was how I began to think about it. I had created a universe in which mercy was doled out sometimes. And so I I couldn't completely rely on it being there because I was not an instrument of it, so I always felt like it was conditional. By no means, you know, I, I struggle like everyone else on all these points, but it helped me. It gave me another way of understanding. When we experience, you see, we're all looking for bliss. And so we do those things that we think will give us bliss. And the whole experience of life is to learn on deeper and deeper levels what actually works and what doesn't. And so when we have an experience in which unrelated seemingly unrelated events come back and cause us pain then it's it's a very strong incentive because we're all seeking bliss. And when we realize that this is not a bliss producing attitude even if we're still, you know, in the habit of going that way um, that's what begins to undermine the habit. Dogma doesn't, fear you know, of punishment doesn't necessarily do it. But really does it is actual experience. That this simply doesn't work. And how do we find out? We find out because we suffer. Just as simple as that. Speaking of Swami Kriyananda, when he had to go through all that with SRF, all those people being so horrible to him, he just said, why would I want to lose twice? You know, I've already lost in the actions that they've taken that have caused me grief, if I now um, develop toward them a similar negativity, then I have, I have compounded the problem. Already I had the karma to draw this. I certainly don't want to create the karma that will draw it again. And it just becomes very practical. And, and it, it, it takes discipline. You know, he, he describes it as the greatest test of his life and that he's had to concentrate and use his willpower to respond correctly. And he often tells us with great um, satisfaction that he feels no animosity at all toward them, even though several of those people behaved toward him very badly. In fact, many of those people behaved very badly. But why should he lose twice? Yeah.
2: So is this feeling like
1: neutral? No, you have to go beyond neutral.
2: Beyond neutral?
1: Neutral is just... Neutral is um, better than actively bad, but neutral is not um, fully open-hearted either.
2: So you have to be as fully (laughs) open-hearted with those people as you are with your friends?
1: Absolutely. Oh, brother. When we were in the... Oh, brother, that's the right response. When we were in the middle of the... When we were in the middle of the lawsuits and people were just treating Swamiji in just unbelievable ways. He said at one point, he said, I thought I was doing well because I was accepting this test. He said, but I have to love this test. And I was accepting people's um, betrayal of me. He said, but I have to love them even if they're betraying me. It's not enough. And he came, he came back from a period of retreat. and said, it's not enough. I thought that was enough. It isn't. Because otherwise you're still bound. I mean, it's not enough in the sense that you're not free. To be neutral is progress. But to be neutral, still you're identified with it and you've risen to neutral. When you completely don't identify, there's the story of Corey and Betsy Tenboom who were in the concentration camp for helping Jews. They were Christians in Holland and they helped Jews. And Corey was the younger sister. Betsy was her older sister. And just before Betsy died in this concentration camp, Corey said... You know, we have to pray for them and after the war we have to help them. And Corey thought Betsy was talking about the Jews and then realized with horror that she was talking about the guards in the prison. And, and Betsy's sympathy had just gone out for the people who were perpetrating this horror and, and she was even more sympathetic toward them than the ones who were receiving it because he saw that, she saw that they were in even more trouble and made Corey promise to help them which was not an easy promise for Corey to make but in the end that that's precisely what they did. Amazing. Yeah. So uh I definitely believe everything you're saying and of course I aspire to that and uh because I'm not I'm not there yet so I try my best and uh I guess I try to give myself a little credit for, oh, I did a little bit better this time than I have in the past, or maybe I slipped, but, you know, it's, it's uh, directional, isn't it? Well, also, yes, it's directional, and our spirituality grows like a seed from the center point within us, and you simply cannot get to there except from here. Yeah. So whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, wherever you are, is the only place you can be, and you just have to keep expanding from that point. I, I don't, you know, what you presently attain is so irrelevant compared to how determined you are to persevere. And that's uh, that's something that's, that's taken me many, many years to understand that. I used to always judge myself according to what I could do. And I finally realized that what I can do now is so temporary. Even if it's positive, it's still not my goal. So the only thing that really matters is that I'm determined to persevere. And you, when you concentrate more on your determination to persevere, it's it's much easier to to maintain the flow of energy. If you're only looking at what you've accomplished, it's by definition not going to be enough. So why even think about it? Just think about your determination to persevere, and that's your that's your. Um, Your guarantee of success.
2: The love is impersonal, though. The love is impersonal. But you can't love your friends with, you know, like, emotion and then love your enemies with impersonal. That doesn't count. Everybody's got to be kind of an impersonal love. That's where you're going.
1: That's where you're going. Impersonal, it's important to understand what that really means. Impersonal simply means that it's not... Um, dependent on ego their ego or yours you're impersonal you're mostly impersonal about yourself you're not thinking about yourself in the situation see personal love says i like you because you're nice because you're very nice because you like me because you're my mother or my husband or my child it's all defined by some limited condition and usually the personal is the personal is you the way you treat me is how i treat you impersonal is i just respond according to what's right and how you respond to me is not doesn't determine my feelings toward you you're not impersonal about that person you know you you can be very attentive to what that person needs you're impersonal about yourself so if you're if somebody doesn't like you and treats you badly it doesn't have anything to do with your feelings because how they treat me is not the issue it's my responsibility in life to love everyone as a child of God, so I do. And if you're a beautiful, happy, lovely person, you can observe that they're beautiful and happy and lovely, and you can enjoy all of that, but you it's still, within yourself, you love because it's the right thing to do, not because that person pleases you. Because if you love people because they please you, then what happens when they don't? And then all of a sudden your love is vulnerable to other people's actions.
2: You no, know, it almost seems um easier to learn to love impersonally than it does to love i guess conditionally or just because somebody's your friend and then then they do something to disappoint you and then you got to struggle to try and stay friends
1: yeah all of that is why there's more bliss on the spiritual path than there is not on the spiritual path yeah. but also even with your friends you have to behave appropriately or even with your enemies you have to behave appropriately You may wish someone well, have no animosity toward them, but you still may have to stand up and fight them very, very strong. In fact, never be passive in your dedication. Even Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. So commit yourself fearlessly to the truth always. We cannot be responsible for the actions of others, but we can and must accept responsibility before God for our own actions. And that's an aspect of this that is very important. Because sometimes people think to be impersonal or unconditional in their love means that they never stand up for anything. Oh, if that's how you feel about it, if that's your truth, that's just fine. But it isn't. We have to be committed ourselves. And when people behave inappropriately in relation to what is of value to us, we have to respond in the right way. But that doesn't mean we close our hearts or we wish them ill. It just means we have to be appropriate. You know, the SRF is a good example Swami has fought extremely hard for the rights of Ananda and has stood up extremely strongly and has spoken out very critically toward many things that SRF has done to the point where people criticize him for being so critical and then he sort of says you know but but I don't have any ill will toward them and not everyone can see that people think that because he's so forceful that that it must be tied to his own personal feelings but it isn't. It's just that's the right way to respond because he has a responsibility to master's work and he feels a responsibility toward those his guru buys because no one else is going to say it to them and he feels it needs to be said. He says it with force. He says it with feeling, but that doesn't mean that there's personal feeling. Now, I mean, that's how I, that's how I've always read it. Some people read it differently, but I've always read it that way. And so we have to not be... Um, passive in our dedication and we mustn't mistake strong action for ego based action I mean master stood up and you know, told the, those rich people that God was displeased with them master went to the um, the raw foods place and told them that they were on a collision course and that people there were going to die of malnutrition and they didn't like it but he said it anyway because he, was, he wasn't passive he was committed to the truth they asked him he told them but he wished them well. See, so often when others of us speak, we're not speaking impersonal truth. We're speaking our, our preferences and trying to make people be different because we need them to be different rather than God wants us to speak that way. And sometimes we're in between and we just have to practice. <laughs> you know. Does that make sense, Marilyn? Yeah, sure does. Yeah. And so a lot of times, depending on where you are, Sometimes you have to just learn. A person really just has to learn to speak up. And it doesn't... I mean, Swami had said to me at different times in my life, I, I had some point of view, and I, it wasn't a popular point of view, and I said, well, I'm so emotional about it. He said, it doesn't matter. You just have to speak up anyway. Because he knew that I needed to learn to speak up without emotion, and not speaking up was not going to solve the problem. It just... I had to learn both sides of it. I had to learn how to speak more calmly... And suppressing my desire to speak wasn't going to take me where I needed to go. It was, it was directional. Yeah. So it all depends on where you're standing as we talk about different times. It's not the same for everyone. It depends on what you're trying to unravel. What's, what's. So don't be passive in your dedication so you learn to get better and better at it. What were we going to say? About
0: this? Um, oh yeah, just taking a step back. Uh, I just picked up the Divine Romance recently. Uh-huh. And just in the first few... Um, pages um, uh, the main point that it's there it's um, a bunch of notes transcribed by one of uh, master's disciples from his talks yeah. and the first few pages the sort of the main point is that all interpersonal uh, all interpersonal love ultimately must point to divine love and um, it he covers uh, maybe just a handful of relationships because there's the father son mother father-child, mother-child um, relationships, how those relationships express different aspects of the divine love. So we're coming from how do we um, best love each other, um, that's the, sort of the reference, and can sort of go, yeah. go there. As you
1: know, when we pray, father, mother, friend, beloved, we're actually talking about the way, the different ways in which love can be expressed. You know, there's, there's a father, the love for the father for the child, the mother for the child, friend to friend, master to disciple, beloved, um, and, and also child. Some people actually think of God as their own child. You know, we can also be the parent toward the baby, which we all do at Christmas time. Um, but those are all the different, the, the, the different relationships we have in our lives are all practice for purifying those relationships to their highest octave. Learning how to love in each of those ways in an impersonal and a perfect way. It's 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 great fun.
2: What happens if, if if the what happens if the love from the mother and the father are really not
1: are distorted, then they teach us by wrong example
2: and then you just have to learn somewhere else.
1: Yeah, you, you learn what not to do. And, you know, we, we, we have whatever kind of lessons are going to be the most helpful for us. And that's part of what we've just been talking about. You know, we may think that this is unfair. And, I mean, I've thought sometimes that, that I got, I got it got in my life the backwards of what I thought would have helped me. But when I think about it more subtly, I realize, no, what I thought was backwards actually really pushed me It pushed me farther in a direction I didn't want to go, but it pushed me so far in a direction I didn't want to go that I suddenly noticed it was a problem. You understand? It's like oftentimes things just have to get really, really bad before we have the incentive to put out the effort to shift them. And so sometimes things that look bad are really just pushing us, pushing us, pushing us, pushing us, until we put our foot down and say, no, I'm going to be different. No, I don't
2: Because but, but but it's a little abstract.
3: I don't
1: okay, know. well, for example, um, a woman came to me and she was very, very resentful of her mother for various reasons. You know, and pretty solid reasons. She wasn't making it up. She did not do real well in the mother department. Um, but her response to that was to be very angry and resentful. And she came to me about that major relationship and it was a little bit hard to unravel because there, there was a lot of karma there. But I said to her, are you inclined to be angry and resentful anywhere else in your life? First she said, oh no. But then she started thinking about it and realized the inclination to respond towards situations with anger and resentment was actually a thread that wove all through her life. And she basically never counted all the small ones because she basically, in some sense, felt justified because of the giant one that was there. But what she was needing to learn in this incarnation, and we took us a little time to work through it, was that that fundamental response to life was an error on her part. And she, she ruefully had to finally admit that if it, if it hadn't been magnified so enormously by that one relationship, she would never have noticed. But it was, a, it was a thread all through her life that by that very, very challenging relationship she'd been pushed so far that all of a sudden she realized that this was just right center stage and it really had to be dealt with. So we started with her. It was impossible, it was impossible to take it apart from the center. So I encouraged her to work on it on the periphery, just every time she had an inclination toward an angry response to to having things not go her way, to discipline herself when it was much easier and begin to sort of notice that response within herself. And then over over a number of years, she actually told me she worked herself all the way back and became quite um, kind-hearted toward um, the core and in the end, actually grateful because it had provided her the map for self-transformation, which was essential, that she would not have seen if it had been more subtle.
2: That's almost the the opposite of um, like a therapy situation. Um, yeah. I mean, but, I mean, yeah. Because you would say, "Oh, because your mother was this way, then you're going to be treating everybody because you didn't learn that stuff." But then, but this is like, you're not as much of a victim.
1: Oh, yeah, you're not a victim Be- because, at all.
2: Because you got this lesson yeah. so that you can see all the things that you've been going, you've been doing yeah. all along.
1: Therapy, psychological therapy has a place even for devotees on the spiritual path. And there are certain ways in which it overlaps, but then there are certain ways in which it totally diverges. Yeah. And a lot of people... Who are therapists and so on are beginning to try to bring their practices more into line with reincarnation and karma because they're seeing that it's a it's a better therapy, basically. Yeah. So therapy is useful of the ordinary of the type you're talking about when you when you really don't know where your pain is coming from, why you're responding, when you're, the causes of your responses are so buried within you that you don't even know it. You know, I'm not angry. You know, I'm not responding like that. I'm not treating you like my mother. Of course I'm not. Of course I'm not. You know, and you you just sometimes have to find out who the heck you are. But once you have some basic, basically self-realization is for people whose, whose egos are pretty functional. And you can't, people sometimes try to come to the spiritual path as a way to escape that middle step. You know, adult children of alcoholics sometimes will come here and they don't have a functioning ego at all. And they'll get to be told they can transcend their ego. So they think they get to skip the whole middle step of having to really face their own feelings, their own realities. They'll think they just get to take that completely non-functioning, broken ego and just give it to God. But the problem is they don't own it. And so what happens, and it's not a bad thing, what happens is that gradually they develop the tools and the courage to face themselves, then they, they come to peace with that, and then they can go on from there. But you can't go on from there until you have the courage to just say, yeah, this is what happened to me, this is who I am, this is how I responded, this is what I'm doing now, let's see what we do. I and mean, sometimes people get, also people who are, who are really trying hard to function in their ego get really sort of mad about this teaching. I'm just learning to assert myself. Don't tell me that I shouldn't. But that's a misunderstanding of the spiritual path. Or it's not time for self-realization. For that person, they have to go through something else first. But I found, interestingly, that if you try to skip a step, it just catches up with you sooner or later, and it just kind of hits you from the back of the head. Whether it's after a year, or ten years, or even twenty years, whatever you're trying to run away from catches up with you. So I don't really worry about it. You just keep on with your practices, and it'll all straighten itself out if you're sincere. Um, I'm going to read number 13 because we have to go all the way through. We should consider our true family members to be those above all who love God. This is a very positive statement of something that many people define Christianity as being about family. Family. And by family, they mean the person you're married to and your children. In fact, uh, someone who comes here sometimes sort of said to me a little suspiciously once, I don't think that Ananda is very family, is not really interested, you know, isn't supportive of family values. I said, well, now that you put it just like that, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, It's by no means that we're not supportive, but we don't really think that religion is defined by your marriage and how you take care of your kids of course if you're a dharmic honorable person you should behave in a dharmic and honorable way and that means if you have responsibilities you should carry them out right out appropriately but your search for god transcends everything and and christianity is just nowadays is just sort of become down to the most mundane realities you know wife and children husband and children home I mean, fine, it, but it, it's all a trajectory. It's all directional. If you're not able to function in a harmonious, responsible way, even within the people who are close to you, you certainly need to learn to do that. And if some churches you know, lock you into that so strongly that you can learn how to do that, that's probably progress. But let's not think that that's what Jesus actually taught. When the man, the disciple, was going to follow Jesus but said, first, I have to go bury my father Jesus' response was, let the dead bury the dead. You know, he just wasn't interested. He wasn't interested in the disciple who put his familial responsibilities above his responsibilities to God. You know, and he even said in other places, I don't bring to bring, I don't come to bring peace but a sword, and I will set the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and the husband against the wife. And you know, it sounds just horrible. But what he, what he's saying is this that. The, our real family members are those who are love, love God. And if people, who, even who have close familial connections to us, actually stand in the way of our spiritual path, then it becomes a lower duty and is no longer a duty for us. A higher dharma replaces a lower dharma. However, you have to be really careful about how you implement that one because it's so convenient. You know, I asked Swamiji at a certain point about my own family and his question question to me was, have they ever done anything to really oppose your spiritual life? I said, no, they never have. He said, well, then there is no reason in the world not to treat them kindly and with respect. You know, they've raised you, you owe them a debt. If they ever try to take you away from the spiritual path, then your duty to God and guru far transcends your duty to family. In Autobiography of a Yogi, the story is told about um, Yogananda's father briefly um, spoke uh, in some way. He repeated some, there was some rumor about Sri Yukteswar and his father, a negative rumor, and his father repeated it. In the autobiography, it doesn't explain that well. And his father repeated it. And Yogananda just turned on his father. Human birth is something, but divine birth is everything. One more word against my guru and I renounce you as my father forever. I mean, there was no no um, understanding offered. It was, I'm my loyalty to my guru. You're, you're my father, you're a good father, but don't even think for a moment that your relationship with me touches my relationship with my master. And it's a very important point. Who is my father? Who is my mother? Except those who love God and in in that in the Bible, Mary was standing outside the door, and they said, "Your mother and your brother are outside. Who is my mother? Who is my father?" He said, "Except those who love God," which actually throws some real doubt on you know what Mary was, why she was there, and what she wanted of him. A master says, "I mean, these are not the popular Christian stories, but when Jesus was twelve and stayed back in Jerusalem." and did not go home with his parents after they'd come there for the Passover. And then three days out from Jerusalem, they realized that he wasn't with the caravan, and they hurried back to find him, and they found him at 12 years old, sitting there teaching in the temple, just as calm and as happy as he could be. He'd been abandoned by his parents. He'd been alone there. And and they were so glad to see him. And instead of like you would expect a child to say, oh, mommy, daddy, I'm so glad, he said... Why are you coming to get me? You know why, are you, why would you think I would have gone back to you? I am, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? I was born for this. What are you trying to hold me to this little role of being your child? And then Master says, this is Master's actual explanation, that shortly after, um, Jesus left home and went to the east, went to Tibet and went to India to repay the visit of the Master's, Um, the three wise men who he said were Sri Yukteswar Lahiri and Babaji that Jesus went to India the the quote lost years he spent there at the feet of the masters and it was all in the Bible but then was taken out but master said that Mary and Joseph wanted him to settle down and get married and have a family (laughs) and he would just have none of it he just walked away from it who is my mother who is my father and so what he's saying is this is Christianity this is the true teaching of Christ. It doesn't mean we should be unkind to those who love us and depend upon us. But if we're ever asked to choose, you know, it's a fine line. It's like everything else. You have to apply it with charity and with wisdom. But if you're ever asked to choose. My, at one point, my parents, my parents were pretty supportive all the way through. But at different times, they would kind of decide for one reason or another to question what I was doing. after I'd been in Ananda for 15 or 20 years, suddenly my my parents, especially, well, my father was the voice of it, just started expressing all these doubts about what I was doing. We were sitting having lunch together in a restaurant. I just looked at him. I said, don't go there. I said, if you force me to choose, I do not think I will choose you. I said, just, it's pointless. Your point of view will not influence me. It will just create tremendous difficulty between us. I said, just don't go there. And he never did. My mother wrote me one or two letters, sort of starting to be critical. I wrote back the same thing. Just don't go there. Because I'm not gonna I won't I won't remain in contact with you if you if you force these issues. I said to my father then too, you know, you raised me to think for myself, so I'm thinking in a very original manner. I thought you would be proud of me. (laughs) He was a little I sort of hoisted him on his own petard at that point and it stuck him. He was wise enough to enjoy what I was doing to him. But he also saw that there was no point. But there was nothing in me that needed their approval. I mean, as a younger person, I may have needed it. But by that point, I, did, I didn't need their approval, so I could be very clean about it. It was like, you know, I love you. I'm, I'm grateful you've been wonderful to me. But really, don't just don't go there. Because our real family is those who love God. That's not easy because we have attachments and we have needs. And so we're, we're, we're tempted, you know, to compromise for the sake of those personal needs. Okay. We should go through life joyfully, knowing that God loves us. Suffering itself should be embraced joyfully as the blessing from God meant to purge us from all delusion. The popular image of Jesus as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief misses the point by many miles. Jesus showed us how, by loving God, we can rise above all sorrow forever. Swamiji raises such a simple, practical point. If Jesus was such a sourpuss, nobody would have followed him. You know, you don't go with someone who's, you go, with, you go where you find joy. He said the way Jesus was able to magnetize people and, and um, get them to leave everything and follow him and, and move the multitudes, the only thing that will do that is that when you give people what they themselves are seeking, which is bliss. And yes, he was acquainted with sorrows because that compassion that the Master has for our suffering is part of that bliss. This is again what Swamiji says. He understands that everyone is seeking bliss. And he had the, the Swamiji has given us the most wonderful statement. When I see people suffering, he says, It just makes me think how much greater will be their happiness when that suffering lifts and they understand the bliss of God. And so far from their suffering making him sad, he turns it to a way that makes him even more blissful because he sees how how much relief they will feel when that bliss comes. That's what I was explaining in some some of the classes I was giving after David and I went to Los Angeles for the funeral of his sister and lived through that experience there where in that very fine community of very honorable and successful Jews, they still had no way of dealing with her death. And as a consequence, there was just a a, a layer of grief that went through there that was impossible to relieve. There was absolutely nothing there was nothing that we could do. There was much that i I could have said, but none of it was would have been welcome, comprehended was invited, so we just did nothing. We just walked around in blue in an almost one hundred percent sea of black. Everybody was wearing black except for us and two other people who were wearing partially black. We actually were it was it was a, it was a beautiful ceremony in this beautiful cemetery and um where she was going to be interred, in the, interred, is that how you say it, in the ground, it was really not very far from where the, the, ser- the service was held. But we got in cars to drive there, but they encouraged everyone else to walk. So I'm in this car, and I look back, and there were like about 250 people walking behind us, all in black. It was actually really beautiful, because it was sort of like, pardon me? Yeah, exactly, but that the car was moving slowly, the, the um, cemetery grounds were beautiful. They had many individual trees at a little bit of distance from each other, and each tree was some unique, it was a different kind of tree, and each one was beautifully grown and tended. Looking out at the trees, it was a very intense moment, I said to my um, nephew, I said, it must be a really special incarnation to be a tree in this cemetery because each one of them had so much consciousness and they were just so majestic and then all these people in black sort of wandering through it. It was was really a terrific ceremony from the point of view of just ritually walking people through the grief process except that they didn't know where they were going. But uh, let's see, why did I say that? Oh yes, we should go through life joyfully knowing that God loves us and the popular Im- image of Jesus as a man of sorrows. And, and to realize that it's not wrong to feel joyful in the face of difficulties. But here's what I was going to say. This was the real point. What finally just eased my heart in that whole situation and really eased it completely was, oh, that's right. It's because of incarnations like this that people later seek God. Because the next time they put all their eggs in the basket of human life, there's a little bit of them that thinks, wow, I wonder if this is going to work. I wonder if the grief at the end of this is going to be worth the pleasure that I'm going to get for a while. And then you begin to think seriously, maybe there's another way to live. I mean, all of us, I mean, many of us, and I speak of myself for sure, I came on the spiritual path very young because I, I know, and when I asked Swami this, I said, sir, I never suffered. I had a really fortunate life. To this moment, I've had a very fortunate life, but I was so intense about happiness, even though it had never been denied me, But he just looked at me so obviously, past lives, Asha. And I was looking at all those people and looking at my um, brother-in-law, and, you know, his grief over the what felt to him like the tragic and premature loss of his wife. I thought, well, these are the experiences that cause you to think more deeply and i was born with this thought i don't i don't want to just walk into the whole story around me there has to be another answer why do we think of that because everyone is seeking bliss and if this didn't bring me bliss maybe i need to try something else and the only way you find that is from experience and so the experience they were having was not something to be shirked and i wasn't from it wasn't right for me to shirk it even i needed to just Let them have that experience and be, just allow it to happen and not, in my heart, shrink from it. Because it was all very positive. And of course, the more you can just relax into that reality, the more when it happens to you, you're also relaxed into it. Yes?
2: Well, sometimes there's things um, you know, like with other people, that j- they're just unbearable to think about, and um, and, and animals and stuff. Um, and it seems like thinking, well, okay, in the next, this is, in an, and they're not going to learn anything in this incarnation. You know, to, to bring them relief, it doesn't seem. But, but it's okay for me to um, to, to realize that this is their life, this incarnation, and...
1: and Sooner or later, you have to get over the thought that it's unbearable. But you live on two levels, Marilyn, you have to understand. Master wept for the suffering that people went through. He was not indifferent to it. Jesus was not indifferent to it. He is, I mean, in fact, the masters are are far more tender-hearted than we are because they have a greater capacity to feel. So they're not indifferent to our sufferings they're not cold in the face of our sufferings they They literally, they weep for us but their grief is tempered by their perspective and their perspective is that sooner or later we're all going to come to bliss so even if this is a very difficult time and my heart breaks for the suffering that you're inflicting upon yourself they know that there's a happy ending at the end of the story and it doesn't make this chapter any more more enjoyable and it doesn't make them at all indifferent and they work as hard as they can to ease our suffering but they're not frightened by it
2: so sometimes i might have to suffer thinking about these things but well eventually grief goes away it's just like happiness goes away grief goes away too
1: but or you sadness. want you want to not go ahead Finish your thought
2: um so just not be afraid while not I'm in grief. Not to be afraid,
1: exactly. And also not to be afraid. See, I realized at some point, Marilyn, that I was willing to believe that difficult things that came to me were for my own good and therefore even if I didn't enjoy them and even if it was hard, I would get through them and at the end there would be a, a divine blessing because of my courage or my perseverance, even if I was a coward, as long as I didn't give up. But I wasn't willing to offer that same respect to others. When others were trapped in painful situations, I became quite panicky about their suffering until I finally realized that I wasn't respecting their divine potential at all. I was imagining that only I could have courage in the face of difficult situations, but everybody else had to be pitied, and I had to panic over it. And I realized how distorted that point of view is. Even animals, you know, anything, everything that happens in this world, it's it's a world of misery and suffering. That's why Krishna says, get away from my ocean of misery. It is a world of misery, there's just no way around it. And the master's suffer with us for that Jesus wept in the garden of Gethsemane not for himself but for the fact that he would brought this message and once again it was going to be rejected and he knew what that meant more than, more than the people who were rejecting him he knew what they were rejecting he knew what they were condemning themselves to he knew the misery they were going to have to go through and it, it made him weep but he wasn't afraid he was just sorry for them and suffering for them, um, but but he he didn't knew it 's quite different. I mean, if you can understand that people panic about suffering, and there 's no reason to panic it 's going to come inevitably to you, me and to everyone, and to every creature on earth and but it 's all going toward bliss, and of course that 's a big step that we have to get faith in that on a deep we can believe that. But the way we get faith on that is facing in to these experiences over and over and then trying to see them from a higher perspective and then failing in that effort and then trying again and then failing in that effort and then trying again until gradually we really do begin to be able to just look at someone who's suffering and not panic.
2: Sometimes when I'm saying healing prayers, I started doing that. It almost seems beautiful
1: the, the suffering. You're I mean, closer, it's
2: so—it's so, sad, but it's still there's some there's some be- beauty about
1: it. We should go through life joyfully, knowing that God loves us. Suffering itself should be embraced joyfully as a blessing from God, meant to purge us from all delusion. Why would others not also be blessed by the suffering they go through? If it's true for me, it's true for them. It's
3: just not going to be in this lifetime.
1: But, but you see, one lifetime so arbitrary. Reincarnation saves everything, you know, because we're suffering now because of what we did in the past, and if we accept it properly, then we'll suffer less in the future. And, you know, after a while, when you live with reincarnation long enough, just the span of one lifetime is so arbitrary. I mean, yes, I mean, this is all perspective. Swamiji tells about his, his fellow disciple, Norman, who was so depressed and... Swami said, how long can it last, 40 or 50 years? That seems so comforting from Swami's point of view. It was not at all comforting to Norman. Yeah, but I've been on the spiritual path now for 40 years. When I wasn't on the spiritual path for more than two or three, 40 just seemed an unbelievably long period of time, just so far outside of the realm of possibility. But now that I've lived through 40 years of being a devotee, I just it feels real different to me. And I mean, and I think of people going through a couple of years of this or a few years of that, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Even though it really seemed like a big deal in this incarnation when I started, I just hope the next time I'm 20, I will think like this instead of like that. (laughs) Because that was not very useful. I mean, I had certain things in order, which I appreciated, but I'd like to have more in order. So I'm going to have another body that gets to be 20. Yeah. So you just work on it. It's, it doesn't really make any difference where you're standing as long as you're pushing toward where you're trying to go. And, and you try to solve your problems in the right direction. That's what I was saying. To merely suppress your feelings is not transcending them. You know, to merely outlast your emotions is not the same as facing into them and really understanding it on a deeper level. You do the best you can. But, you know, we just keep trying to solve our problems on the highest octave until gradually we discover that they've all gone away and we've been replaced with a new, more subtle set of problems that resemble the others, but at least are different. You know, we really do change. Let me read number 15 so I will have read it. We should never accept the thought that we are sinners except perhaps as a playful expression of humility, But seriously to call oneself a sinner is to identify oneself with sin. The worst sin before God then is to say in all seriousness, I am a sinner. To say I have erred is different. This admission is necessary if one truly wants to change. But to say I err because it is my nature to err is to give oneself all the excuse he needs to keep on, is it erring or erring, whatever it is. To say, I am a sinner, is actually to justify one's own sinfulness. That's such a glorious phrase. If I'm a sinner, what can I expect of myself except more of the same? As Swamiji says, it gives you all the justification you need to just keep right on going. That's a very subtle distinction, but an absolutely important one. And again, he's trying very hard to correct a fundamental misunderstanding. See, the poor churches, I mean, I laughed when I saw some church book where they've given you something to do every 15 minutes, they start down a certain road and then they have to keep making up reasons for things that they didn't realize they were going to get caught in. So they wanted Jesus to save us by his sacrifice. But then if Jesus saves us, that means that we must be inherently unworthy and we want to make Jesus so powerful that he can take away this. So then we end up having to all just be terrible, and if that means we're terrible, then we're all fundamentally sinners. And the point of all that is that makes Jesus so much greater because he takes all our sins away from us, and you just end up way down a road you never really wanted to go. I, actually, I watched that in a small way with SRF when I was uh, uh, dismantling some of their errors. They had some end material in the autobiography of a yogi that said that members of SRF in good standing can always count on being blessed by the masters. That's what they said. It was, it was pretty much words like that. I mean, it was just terrible writing and nobody even really thought about it, but I had so much fun taking it apart. So like, before I become a member, does that mean I don't have the blessings of the masters? And if I fall behind in my dues, does that mean that those blessings are withdrawn? <laughs> You know, and like, who decides? And you get some of the masters if you pay some of the money. And, and like, it's just, it's just terrible. But they didn't mean to say that, but that's what they actually said. And a whole lot of Christian dogma, I know, just got formed by accident. They just started down a road, and then they had to start answering questions. What happens to unbaptized babies? They go to limbo, they decided, whatever limbo was. You know, Catholics grew up trying to praying for babies who were caught in limbo. Now they've decided there is no such thing as limbo because it's just too ridiculous and unsupportable. But at some point, somebody asked, well, what happens to the unbaptized baby? So somebody made up a doctrine. Didn't have anything to do with Jesus. This whole business of being a sinner um, has a certain metaphysical base because we do feel ourselves being drawn against our will to do things that we don't want to do. But the key to answers it so much more constructively. Why is it that we seem compelled... Against our best interest, desire and anger, that's what takes us there. But then you see you're dealing with your own characteristics, which you can then dismantle. And we do feel like we have a side of our nature that's beyond our control, but it's absolutely essential that we just recognize that the only thing, the difference between a saint and the most terrible person in the world is how they behave. There's nothing inherent. It's all just vritis calm those vrittis, overcome those vrittis, and there is nothing else there. It's a pattern of energy. Shift the pattern of energy, we become what we've always been. You know, we are a perfect image of God and we've allowed ourselves to become distracted from that. So all we have to do is to focus properly. We don't even have to attain it, we just have to realize it. it's um, absolutely core to the spiritual path and vitally important, uh, to always fight against even that little tiny thought. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm a bad person. No, no, I've made mistakes. I've erred. I've definitely done things that in retrospect were not a good idea. But that's all. It's a huge difference. You know, one of the phrases that I like well is to say, I'm not proud of what I've done, but I refuse to be ashamed of it either it's just I made mistakes because we all make mistakes but it doesn't have anything to do with who we are inside it's just a surface thing that we can take off so that's the end of the story and we did it running without a break because I knew we couldn't finish it we took a break so thank you all very much we will now take a week off because Swamiji will be with us next week and then when we come back we'll start in on the Mahabharata which will really be a whole different story We'll do the Mahabharata and then we'll do the Ramayana and that'll take us into Christmas. Great fun. Thank you all very much.